Hello again, everybody. Sorry, I had to turn on my camera here. So I'm reviewing uh, the information I've gathered so far on the Bar Epstein Kirkland Ellis Dominion Voting Systems agenda. So we're going to go through those today and see how that goes. I'm in the midst of uh, reviewing that right now. So. We're not going to jump in too too hard on this, but uh, the nevertheless, it's there's a lot of information, and I'm not going to be able to review it all because I came up with a lot of information, and like anything else, it takes a while to go through it all. And I'm checking to make sure the live stream is actually on. <laughs> Hopefully, it is. Uh, I'm, we'll find out here in a second. I don't want to get too far. In. Yep, here we go. So where we're going to start with we're going to start with uh this is general barr the chairman has pointed out that after the Hillary Clinton email investigation, there were a number um, at Mr. Comey's press conference, I think it was July the 5th, roughly 2016, there were a number of prominent Democratic members of the Senate who said that Comey should, be, uh, should resign um, or be fired. Um, I believe you said that you've concluded as a matter of law that the president is the head of the executive branch of government has the right to, to fire executive branch employees. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? That's right. In this case, the president was relying, at least in part, on a recommendation by the deputy attorney general, uh, Rod Rosenstein, arising out of uh, Rod Rosenstein's critique of uh, Mr. Comey's conduct uh, in holding that press conference, releasing derogatory information about Secretary Clinton but then announcing that no reasonable prosecutor would bring charges against her. Is that right? That's right. You started your career, I believe, uh, in the intelligence community and then moved on, of course, to the Department of Justice. And uh, thank you for agreeing to serve again <laughs> as Attorney General and help restore uh, the department's reputation as an impartial arbiter of the law and not as a political arm of any administration. I think that's very, very important that you and Director Ray uh, continue your efforts in that regard, and I'm grateful to you uh, for you. that. But I do believe that we need to uh, ask the question, why didn't the Obama administration do more uh, as early as 2014 in investigating Russian efforts uh, to prepare to undermine and sow dissension in the 2016 uh, election. Uh, Mr. Mueller's report does document that the uh, 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 Russian government through the intelligence, uh, through their intelligence agencies and their internet research, or IRA I think it's called, uh, began as early as 2014, began their efforts to do so. And we know they met with uh, some success. Is it any... Uh, surprise to you based on your experience that the Russians would try to do everything they can uh, to sow dissension in American political life, including uh, in our elections? No, not at all. I mean, uh, I think the, the Internet uh, 
uh, creates a lot more opportunities to, to, to have a, you know, to have that kind of covert effect uh, on American body politics. So it's getting more and more dangerous. But the Russians have been at this for a long time in various different ways. But the point you made about uh, Bob Mueller's efforts on IRA, that's one of the things that struck me about the report. I think it's very impressive work that they did in, in moving quickly uh, to get into the uh, to get into the IRA and also the, the the GRU folks, and I was thinking to myself if that had been done in two thousand, you know, starting in the beginning of two thousand sixteen, uh, we would have been a lot further along. For example, we've heard a lot about the Steele dossier. Um, Mr. Steele, of course, is a former British intelligence officer hired by uh, to do opposition research uh, by the. Hillary Clinton campaign on um, on her political adversaries, including uh, President Trump or candidate Trump at that time. How do we know that the Steele dossier is not itself evidence of Russian disinformation campaign, knowing what we know now that basically the allegations made in, therein were secondhand hearsay or unverified? Can we uh, state with confidence that the Russian that the Steele dossier was not part of the Russian disinformation campaign? No, I can't state that with confidence, and, and that is one of the uh, areas that I'm reviewing. Uh, I'm concerned about it and, it, and and I don't think it's entirely speculative. Well, we know that uh, from published reports that uh, the head of the, uh, the CIA, Mr. Brennan, the, uh, went to President Obama and brought his concerns about initial indications of Russian involvement in the campaign as early as the late of July, late July 2016. And instead of doing more during the Obama administration to look into that and disrupt and deter Russian activities that threatened the validity and integrity of our campaign in 2016, it appears to me that um, um, the Obama administration, Justice Department, and uh, FBI decided to place their bets on Hillary Clinton and focus their efforts on investigating the Trump campaign. But as you have pointed out, thanks to the general, thanks to the special counsel, we now have confidence that no Americans colluded with the Russians in their effort to undermine the American people. So it's, this is more of a foundational thing because this was about, well, Barr had gotten appointed or was uh, confirmed in February of 2019 for the second time in his uh, long career uh, in and out of the justice system in terms of the Department of Justice. Uh, and then they're going through and laying the foundation because right now they're reviewing the Mueller report, which, of course, the Democrats made a big to-do about, and we're going to get into that going forward. Um, I'll play us uh, play Senator Whitehouse here who is not one of my favorite people but um, yeah the the point is is that he lays some of the background he, Bill Barr worked in intelligence in the early 1970s uh, I think it was 73 through 77 so or, I've seen dates as early as 71 I think uh, Bill Barr is uh, 72 years old so uh, he was born in 1950 so early 20s he was in his early 20s he got married in 1972 uh, to a gal who worked at a librarian in uh, 
they have uh, two daughters and they're both uh, well uh, we'll get to that later they all happen to be working in government and there are some scenarios regarding that as far as the steel dossier it should be noted that all this russia 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 stuff could also be ukraine 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 stuff because the democratic uh, uh democrats and the republicans are both deep embedded in the uh the ukrainian uh corruption they started it in 2014 they were the ones who uh, um started the revolution out there the russians seized power in the right uh, on, the, on the eastern half uh, as far as uh uh, two provinces in particular because they're Russian speaking Ukraine uh, Ukraine is a mess and the the whole thing about uh, the steel dossier if you go through it all it is all a bunch of bullshit it was paid for by um, you know, through Perkins Coey uh, Fusion GPS uh, there's a host of uh, media people that are attached to it uh, yes and um, they it was it it seems and there's more than seems there there seems to be a concerted effort for them to keep they were very upset and it should be noted that uh fusion was working with both not only with uh, hillary's campaign but they were also working with the bush campaign the jeb bush campaign and so the neocons and the neolibs have their buckets of corruption they both want to make money off this stuff so they were uh, part and parcel to this entire conflict uh, together and Trump getting in and getting uh, they had to shut him down and they had they kept him under constant investigation so we're gonna go on to Senator Whitehouse here I'll listen to him for a couple minutes that's about all I can take earlier this morning which she described the importance of to use Chairman Graham's words, hardening our electoral infrastructure against foreign election interference. Uh, I ask you, is anonymous election funding an avenue for possible foreign election influence and interference? Yes. Um, let's turn to the uh, March 27th letter, which you received and read March 28th, the Mueller letter, mm -hmm. correct? Yes. Um, when did you have the conversation with Bob Mueller about that letter that you've referenced? I think it was on the 28th. Same day that you read it? When did you first learn of the New York Times and Washington Post stories that would make the existence of this letter public, the ones that came out last night? I think it could have been yesterday, but I'm not sure. When they contacted you to ask for any comment? They didn't contact me contacted DOJ to ask for any comment? I can't actually remember how it came up, but someone mentioned it. So you, at some point you knew that the Mueller letter was going to become public, and that was probably yesterday? I think so. Okay. Uh, when did you decide to make that letter available to us in Congress? This morning. Um, would you concede that you had an opportunity to make this letter public on April 4th? when Representative Christ asked you a very related question? Uh, I don't know what you mean by related question. It seems to me it'd be a very different question. I can't even follow that down the road. That, I mean, boy, that's a masterful hair splitting. Um, the um, letter references 
enclosed documents and enclosed materials, right? Are those the same things as what you called the executive summaries that Mueller provided you? With this letter? Yes. Yes. It's all the same document. I'm sorry. What's when you talk about the executive summaries that Mueller provided you, they are the documents that were the enclosed documents with that letter, which we have not been provided. I think they were. The, uh, they have been provided, though. They're in the report. They're the summaries in the report. It's the language of the report in the report? There's nothing else that he provided you then? I, I think that's what he provided. Okay. Uh, if there is anything else, will you provide it to us? If it's different in any form, it's odd to be given a letter without the attachments to it when the attachments I think are I think they the were letter. the redacted versions of the we get executive that? summaries that are embedded in the report. Can we get that, just to be sure? Sure. Great, thank you. Um, you agree that none of that material was either grand jury 6E or presented a risk to uh, intelligence sources and methods or would interfere or compromise ongoing investigation there, or affected, were affected by executive privilege? There were redactions made in the uh, executive summaries. The, but as I said, I'm, I wasn't interested in putting out summaries, period. Well, you know, we and, can, and frankly, this is another hair-splitting exercise because Bob Mueller, who I think we all agree is fairly credible, actually described your letter as a summary. So you can say it wasn't a summary, but Mueller said it was a summary. And I don't think I wasn't really... I wasn't interested in summarizing the whole report. As I say, I was stating the, the bottom line conclusions of the report. Your letter and itself I, and I, says that it's intended to describe I quote your words. To yeah, describe, describe, the report. describe the report, meaning volume one dealt when with this. When you describe the report in four pages and it's a four hundred page report, I don't know why you're caviling about whether because it's a I, summary. Because or I not. state in the letter that I'm stating the the uh, principal conclusions. Um, Let me the, also say that you know Bob Mueller is the equivalent of a U.S. attorney. He was exercising the powers of the attorney general subject to the supervision of the attorney general. He's part of the Department of Justice. His work concluded when he sent his report to the attorney general. At that point, it was my baby, and I was making a decision as to whether or not to make it public, and I effectively overrode the regulations, used discretion to, to lean as far forward as I could, could to make that public, and it was my decision how and when to make it public, not Bob Mueller's. With respect to the... So here you get a, get a feel for uh, Bill Barr in his, uh, you know, as he said, it was his baby. Um, he takes an authoritarian step, of course. This would be dependent upon your political framing. You know, some would get very upset about this, but this is posturing on his part because he's just saying, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And you're, you know, I make the decision of what what uh, what that report is and how it's going to be released and, and whatnot. He's worked with Bob Mueller before, as we will find out. He's very close, uh, closely related. I think is uh, a matter of fact. I have a. I'll summarize it because there's a lot of information to go through. So we're going to move on to the next thing. Um, anyway, uh, just because this was in May of 2019, May 1st, I think. So they make a big deal here later on about how many weeks went by and stuff like that. Uh, yes, uh, you know, of course, 
He's trying to build build credibility, by the way, with his administration that he just got hired by. He's trying to build credibility with Trump. Doesn't mean that he's helping Trump. Too many people, specifically of a political persuasion on the left, uh, you know, they saw you know they saw him as evil incarnate, which he may very well be, but they uh, they presumed that he was helpful to Trump, which he wasn't, and. We should understand that he is, he, definitionally, he is a swamp creature. He could care less. He, he's all about his own power. He was a Bushy from the get-go. He worked in the CIA for Bush, for Christ's sake. So we'll move on to the next video. I'm going to let it play, and, and I'll uh, let it go from there. The FBI's arrest of Jeffrey Epstein's longtime associate, Ghislaine Maxwell, the British socialite, has been charged with helping recruit underage girls for the convicted sex offender. In just a moment, we'll speak with Brad Edwards, an attorney representing more than 50 women who say they were victims of Epstein. But first, Adrian Banker has the latest on the case. Good morning, Adrian. Good morning to you, too, Eva. We are out in front of Epstein's mansion on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Now, according to investigators, Maxwell allegedly befriended these girls and took them shopping and to the movies, grooming them before turning them over to Epstein, where he would abuse them at his properties like this one in New York. This morning, Ghislaine Maxwell, the alleged co-conspirator and ex-girlfriend of accused sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein, is waking up behind bars. The 58-year-old charged in a six-count indictment, including conspiracy and perjury, accused of facilitating Epstein's sex crimes by helping him recruit, groom, and ultimately abuse three unnamed teenage victims, one as young as 14 years old, between 1994 and 1997. Maxwell played a critical role in helping Epstein to identify, befriend, and groom minor victims for abuse. In some cases, Maxwell participated in the abuse herself. The FBI arresting Maxwell Thursday in Bradford, New Hampshire, at this 156-acre property dubbed Tucked Away that she bought for more than a million dollars. She had slithered away to a gorgeous property in New Hampshire, continuing to live a life of privilege while her victims live with the trauma inflicted upon them years ago. Investigators say that property was carefully purchased in full with cash by an anonymous LLC and alleged that Maxwell had been carefully attempting to avoid detection since Epstein's death, moving at least twice, shuffling money between more than 15 different bank accounts and using a fake name for mail and deliveries. For years, Maxwell has been accused by dozens of women of helping to procure and groom young girls for Epstein, allegations she has consistently denied. Jeffrey Epstein and his network of enablers stole from me. They robbed me of my youth, my identity, my innocence, and my self-worth. The indictment alleges that she would normalize sexual abuse by discussing sexual topics, undressing in front of the victim, being present when a minor victim was undressed, and or being present for sex acts involving the minor victim and Epstein. My so that's just to lay the foundation of uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, who uh, also befriended uh, Nathan Wolf, who uh, has a close... Uh, close uh, legion or close a uh, business dealings with uh, Hunter Biden through Metabiota just so you know and Ghislaine was uh and it, as it just so happens at Water Island which is next uh, fairly close it's like eight miles away from uh 
Little St. James is uh, Water Island. There's uh, properties on Water Island. There were three of them, and, and now there's two. Uh, one of the parcels was sold off that was owned by James Biden. Just so you know, these people run in circles, and, and we need to know that right away. So this is just a short clip from Bill Barr in July of 2019, and we're gonna. It's only 17 seconds, so it's the let it play out. I'm recused from that matter uh, because one of the law, uh, one of the law firms that represented Epstein long ago was a firm that I subsequently joined for a period of time. So there you go. Director, the FBI interviewed Joseph Mifsud on February 10th, 2017. In that interview, Mr. Mifsud lied. You point this out on page 193, volume one, Mifsud denied. Mifsud also falsely stated. In addition, Mifsud omitted. Three times he lied to the FBI, yet you didn't charge him with the crime. Excuse me, why, are, did you say not? one, I'm sorry, did you say 193? Volume one, 193. He lied three times, you pointed out in the report. Why didn't you charge him with the crime? I can't get into uh, internal deliberations with regard to who would or would not be uh, charge a lot of other people for making false statements. Let's remember this. Let's remember this. In 2016, the FBI did something they probably haven't done before. They spied on two American citizens associated with a presidential campaign, George Papadopoulos and Carter Page. With Carter Page, they went to the FISA court. They used the now famous dossier as part of the reason they were able to get the warrant and spy on Carter Page for a better part of a year. With Mr. Papadopoulos, they didn't go to the court. They used human sources. All kinds of, from about the moment Papadopoulos joins the Trump campaign, you got all these people all around the world starting to swirl around him. Names like Halper, Downer, Mifsud, Thompson, meeting in Rome, London, all kinds of places. The FBI even sent even sent a lady posing as somebody else, went by the name Azra Turk, even dispatched her to London to spy on Mr. Papadopoulos. In one of these meetings, Mr. Papadopoulos is talking to a foreign diplomat, and he tells the diplomat, Russians have dirt on Clinton. That diplomat then contacts the FBI, and the FBI opens an investigation based on that fact. You point this out on page one of the report. July 31st, 2016, they open the investigation based on that piece of information. Diplomat tells Papadopoulos, Russians have dirt, excuse me, Papadopoulos tells the diplomat, Russians have dirt on Clinton. Diplomat tells the FBI, what I'm wondering is, who told Papadopoulos? How'd he find out? I can't get into the evidentiary file. Yes, you can, because you wrote about it. You gave us the answer. Page 192 of the report, you tell us who told him. Joseph Mifsud. Joseph Mifsud's a guy who told Papadopoulos, the mysterious professor who lives in Rome and London, works at teaching two different universities. This is the guy who told Papadopoulos. He's the guy who starts it all. And when the FBI interviews him, he lies three times, and yet you don't charge him with a crime. You charge Rick Gates for false statements. You charge Paul Manafort for false statements. You charge Michael Cohen with false statements. You charge Michael Flynn, a three-star general, with false statements. But the guy who puts the country through this whole saga starts it all for three years we've lived this now. He lies, and you guys don't charge him. And I'm curious as to why. Well, I can't get into it, and, uh, and it's obvious, I think, that we can't get into charging decisions. When the FBI interviewed him in February, FBI interviews him in February, 
when the special counsel's office interviewed Mifsud. Did he lie to you guys too? Can't get into that. Did you interview Mifsud? Can't get into that. Is Mifsud Western intelligence can't or Russian intelligence? Can't get into that. A lot of things you can't get into. What's interesting, you can charge 13 Russians no one's ever heard of, no one's ever seen, no one's ever going to hear of them, no one's ever going to see them. You can charge them. You can charge all kinds of people who are around the president with false statements. But the guy who launches every, the guy who puts this whole story in motion, you can't charge him. I think that's amazing. I'm not certain I agree with your characterizations. Well, I'm reading from your report. Mifsud told Papadopoulos. Papadopoulos tells the diplomat. The diplomat tells the FBI. The FBI opens the investigation July 31st, 2016. And here we are three years later, July of 2019. The country's been put through this. And the central figure who launches it all lies to us. And you guys don't hunt him down and interview him again. And you don't charge him with a crime. Now, here's the good news. Here's the good news. The president was falsely accused of conspiracy. The FBI does a 10-month investigation, and James Comey, when we deposed him a year ago, told us at that point they had nothing. You do a 22-month investigation. At the end of that 22 months, you find no conspiracy. And what's the Democrats want to do? They want to keep investigating. They want to keep going. Maybe a better course of action, maybe a better course of action is to figure out how the false accusation started. Maybe it's to go back and actually figure out why Joseph Mifsud was lying to the FBI. And here's the good news. Here's the good news. That's exactly what Bill Barr is doing. And thank goodness for that. That's exactly what the Attorney General and John Durham are doing. They're going to find out why we went through this three-year three saga. Well, they didn't, and Bill Barr didn't. And Bill Barr tapped out in December of 2020. And of course, you know, lots of promises made, lots of promises broken. And of course, and we know about John Durham not doing what he was supposed to do. It's quite entertaining because, let's see here if I even have it. No, I don't have it up, but I can pull it up here. So I have a bunch of, um, let me see here. I'll actually, you know, do this in real time. Because I have, a, there's just so much. And I have a story to put together here. So let's see if I can bar bar Mueller friendship. So that's Robert Mueller there. And so here you go. So I actually did have, oh, I did have it already up. So new Trump, Mueller and Barr are good friends. So as you can see, there's the picture. Pictures are worth a thousand words. So as you can see, William Barr speaks. Um, uh, as far as uh, there you go, I even highlight. Uh, I can't highlight on this one for whatever reason. And Assistant Attorney General, and then Assistant Attorney General Robert Mueller stand nearby. So and they they're so close together, and they know each other so well that uh, their wives are close friends who attend Bible study <laughs> together. They do. Uh, they've been working together for quite some time. So we'll just leave that for there. But just that's that's the thing. These this is a I'm building a timeline, and we're going to get to the other parts of this story. But I wanted to first uh, introduce some background on because <clears throat> this was July 24th of 2019. As it turns out, the next I think it was the very next day, the Trump uh, did a phone call, did the phone call to Ukraine, and Erica Charamella decided to uh, 
at least that's the that's always been the one who was considered the uh, the whistleblower, the guy who worked in the NSA for Obama. All these people that were swirling around Trump were always just snitching and uh, hanging on his every word. And of course, the printout of the phone call. And I know there's lots of liberals and Democrats that have their, uh, you know, oh my God, he was spy. He was trying to. They spied on Trump for three. They spied on Trump throughout his campaign. He's trying to get to an investigation out in Ukraine, and it also was tied to money and resources that were supposed to be provided to Ukraine at that time. And he wanted to know why they were doing the things they were doing, because they're a corrupt country. But anyway, going on to the next part. Now this will, this will, this will be reminiscent of what we're getting down to the nitty gritty about Bill Barr. New York Post printed out an article where they had interviewed a man by the name of Louis Kassman. Now, Kassman is a former mobster, used to work for John Gotti Sr. And Kassman claims that just a few weeks ago, in fact, right before Jeffrey Epstein was found beaten and bruised in his jail cell, that Attorney General William Barr made a trip to that jail, which is very unusual. Attorney generals typically do not go and visit federal prisons. But according to this former mobster, yes, Bill Barr went and visited this prison where Epstein was being held in New York. Take this with a grain of salt, I guess. I mean, how credible is Kassman? Are there any videos to back up his claim? Is there any evidence? Are there any other witnesses who saw Bill Barr go into that jail. As of this recording, we do not have any corroborating witnesses, but that doesn't mean they don't exist. And again, I don't wanna sit here and push conspiracy theories, but at the same time, we don't have much to go on at this point other than broad speculation. We know that Trump was tied to Epstein. We know that Bill Clinton was tied to Epstein, but most of the stories that had been coming out were a lot more damning for Donald Trump than they were for Bill Clinton. Trump had been directly implicated in some of the same behaviors that Epstein was accused of by at least one woman who named him in a lawsuit, by the way. FYI, that uh, lawsuit was, uh, did, no, did not uh, go forward uh, they withdrew their complaint. That was in 2016, and Clinton was on the plane a heck of a was on the Lolita Express. I think it was 26 times, if I'm not mistaken. And Trump uh, actually was the one who snitched on Epstein back in 2007, 2008. He kicked him out of his private club and whatever else. I'm not saying he doesn't have any uh, culpability, but billionaires run around. Uh, Epstein is a shady character. We know that. He was intelligence. He worked for uh, uh, almost ostensibly Mossad. And uh, and he also worked uh, for the CIA. At least that's what's been scuttlebutted around. So, and uh, quite possibly MI6. Uh, his, um, yeah, his... Uh, Kind of his cohort, Ghislaine Maxwell, Robert Maxwell was involved in that too. So you have a lot of shady characters, and they are very shady, and they're very slimeball-y characters. 
So it stands to reason why is it that Epstein had so many people? Why was it that he was uh, able to supposedly make a donation to Harvard? I guess it was thirty million dollars, but that thing got. Uh, there's been spec. There's been reports that 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 didn't go through. Why was he hanging out with all the transhumanists? Uh, because that's what he was into. So I'll let this go forward, and then we'll get on to the next uh, video. And then Bill Barr shows up, and according to Cashman, a couple days later or day later, I guess it was, uh, Epstein's beaten and bruised. Fast forward a couple weeks after that, Epstein's dead. We don't have any cause of death from the medical examiner. We don't have any footage of the cameras. And that's another thing Cashman said though. These prisons are under surveillance 24 seven. There is no way that if Bill Barr went into that prison or if Epstein did in fact kill himself, that there would not be video of it. It has to exist somewhere. Unfortunately, this being a federal prison, it is under the jurisdiction of the US Department of Justice. So the chances of us getting our hands on any of that video are slim to none. Unless of course, somebody decides to leak it. And I posed that question on Twitter over the weekend. And a lot of people said, well, obviously Bill Boy, listen folks. Okay. I don't just say things willy nilly sometimes. Here's the point. Not everybody that works at that prison that had access to those tapes would be in on any conspiracy. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. Maybe they weren't comfortable with it. Maybe it's nothing out of the ordinary at all. The point is that low level staffers, members of the IT department, whoever it may be, would also have access to those tapes. Maybe they don't have the physical copies anymore. Maybe they don't have digital files to send out, but they do know what they saw with their own eyes. And those people could come forward. They supposedly, or I think there was a story in early 2021 that there was some uh, money transacted to a couple of the guards in the prison. So take that for what you will. This is actually, so obviously this guy has a, a bias. He has a huge channel. This video was found on YouTube and they didn't take it down. So it's quite okay to push conspiracy theorists, uh, conspiracy theories, supposedly about uh, <clears throat> uh, who, who would have uh, benefited from the, the takedown of uh, Jeffrey Epstein. So, now we're going to hear from the man himself, uh, Bill Barr again. Before I begin, I'd like to briefly address news from the Manhattan Correctional Center over the weekend regarding Jeffrey Epstein. This sex trafficking case was very important to the Department of Justice and to me personally. It was important to the dedicated prosecutors in the Southern District of New York and to our FBI agents who investigated the case and were preparing it for trial. Most importantly, this case was important to the victims who had the courage to come forward and deserve the opportunity to confront the accused in the courtroom. I was appalled, and indeed the whole department was, and frankly, angry to learn of the MCC's failure to adequately secure this prisoner. We are now learning of serious irregularities at this facility that are deeply concerning and demand a thorough investigation. 
the FBI and the Office of Inspector General are doing just that. We will get to the bottom of what happened, and there will be accountability. But let me assure you that this case will continue on against anyone who was complicit with Epstein. Any co-conspirators should not rest easy. The victims deserve justice, and they will get it. Ain't that a crock of shit, because that didn't happen. Uh, yeah, they... they uh, it's funny. These... See, he's good. He's very good. Well, so now we're going. This is that was two days after. Uh, that was uh, August twelfth. So that was the Monday after uh, Epstein. So uh, uh, the time of death was early in the morning on uh, August tenth. I remember it because I did a video that morning. I found out about it, and I concurred. There's no way that a maximum. Uh, you know, this place was not some also ran prison. Uh, yeah, they would have all kinds of, you know, but that's where we're going to get to with the next uh, video. Uh, so I'll go ahead and play that. Attorney General William Barr weighing in on the suspicion surrounding the death of convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. Barr saying he did have concerns follow following the apparent suicide in a Manhattan correctional center. And he tells the Associated Press, quote, I can understand people who immediately, whose minds went to sort of the worst case scenario because it was a perfect storm of screw-ups. I'll just say there is good progress being made and I'm hopeful in a relatively short time there will be tangible results. Joining me now is New York Post columnist Miranda Devine. Um, Miranda, he, the AG also said that he personally reviewed the videotape coverage and he can say that nobody entered the cell that Epstein was alone the whole time. Yeah, look, I thought that was pretty impressive that he personally did review that footage, but it also doesn't actually allay our suspicions that it wasn't a kind of a, a Frankie Five Angels uh, Godfather 2 experience where someone actually went to Epstein and said, look, you might as well kill yourself because otherwise you know we can get to you because we did two weeks ago and it won't be, it'll be much less uh, mm -hmm. pain-free. Mm -hmm. Better for you to do it on your own terms. So, you know, perhaps he did it that way. Um, it doesn't allay anyone's suspicions that he knew had a lot of dirt on a lot of powerful people like Prince Andrew and where is where are those videos and photographs and he seemed to he had uh, you know peephole cameras in every corner of his mansion right where is the footage from that where is so, that exactly mm. so you, you mentioned Prince so there as the presumption is that Barr says that he reviewed this uh, tape we were told that there wasn't any tape. We were told they were going to get to the bottom of things. Epstein, they had a treasure trove of uh, videotapes and all kinds of stuff that came from that. And the FBI is going to sit on that for as long as, well, till hell freezes over. But it goes to this whole, and like I said, that this is the one part of the rabbit hole, by the way. This isn't the whole thing. So it's... Uh, let me see if I can uh, get to the, the part. So, with Epstein, though, I, you know, out of the Epstein thing is the fact that he was connected to so many people. There's also the angle of the ex, uh, you know, the, the tie-in to the executor, uh, Boris Nikolic. And the fact that there's that famous picture with Lawrence Summers 
uh, Staley, Jess Staley, who was the president of Bank of America, and he emailed Epstein over a thousand times. And Bill Gates, who is a transhumanist, and obviously we know all about Bill Gates. We've gone through that discussion. You notice Miranda Devine is in this video. She she of the writer of the laptop of lap laptop from hell, which of course involves Hunter Biden. Um, as we've discussed, there's a cl close pattern of connection there. So here's a uh, so this kind of wraps up the Epstein part of this presentation. Now we're going to transition to what I think is uh, the election part of this presentation. But we're going to lay some background here. So first off, we're going to start off with this this fellow who I didn't I didn't know much about. So Bancroft founder Viet Dien. Um, he moves over to Kirkland Ellis. And as we remember, Kirkland was, wasn't was mentioned directly, but uh, Bill Barr worked for Kirkland Ellis. He was of counsel there in 2009. He was also of counsel there uh, as of March 17th of 2017. So going through, and why is this got to do anything with anything? So this is just when uh, he got hired into Kirkland. So, this this fellow here is important, and I'll get to it. So, he his entire firm was absorbed by Kirkland Ellis. So that's Bancroft PLLC. So anyway, so Viet Den, okay, he was joined uh, by former Solicitor General Paul Clement. So powerful people getting in there. So Bancroft became known as a top flight Supreme Court. Appellate practice handling high-profile hot-button such as challenges to aspects of Obamacare, but uh, blah blah blah. We'll just go on. And you, you notice this. I just want to get his some of his background in there and some of the names. Kirkland partner Mark Phillip. So, is there anything else with this? Uh, let's see here. Um, <clears throat> so he's high. He winds up. We'll get to it here. Viet, uh, Viet Dan about his firm's lawyers moving on to moving over to Kirkland. So they have a so anyway they they talk to various people. So the next part of this is this. So this is Viet Dan, the most powerful lawyer in America. You know, so this is the same fellow, courtesy of Fox Corporation. Why is that important? Because he became the chief lawyer at Fox, the top the top dog. And we'll we'll get to the so now he's a top lawyer at Fox, and <clears throat> so they made a bunch of profit, no big deal. Um, but the timing is like everything else. So we're gonna get to that. Okay, Dan has a lot on his plate right now. Two years ago, he March nineteenth of twenty nineteen, Fox Corporation became a standalone publicly traded company. The following day, Disney acquired what remained of 21st Century Fox. So they, you know, obviously split the split the uh, split it in half. <clears throat> so he's the chief legal officer to a major public company. So you know, they talk about his background coming from Vietnam. Um, I, I would highlight all this stuff, but evidently I'm having issues with highlighting. Um, kind of weird, which is messed up. Um, but uh, I can't even uh, select anything. So, okay. So he went to Harvard College. 
the thing that we need, okay, you see the whole group of people that he became friends with, Paul Clement, Mark Philippe, and Pat uh, Philbin, Harvard, uh, Harvard Law School class of 1992. So where does it jump off for us? It starts in 2001. Dan took a leave from Georgetown Law for another stint in government, serving as a t assistant attorney general for the Office of Legal Policy under George uh, George W. Bush. So he uh, worked for Attorney General John Ashcroft, and uh, including Paul Clement, then the principal deputy solicitor general and later solicitor general. And Dan was excited by the opportunity to both serve his nation and participate in the workings of government. It was a trying period. And uh, I think here it goes after two years leading the OLP, during which he played a key role in advancing conservative legal agenda, including passing the Patriot Act. So he was part and parcel to that. That's pretty important because now the Patriot Act is being turned in inwards on the the entirety of our country. So so it talks about him joining Kirkland Ellis. And then we come down here after the Kirkland Ellis transaction, which Dan saw, uh, Dan became a partner at Kirkland. So he's not some small potatoes, of course, because of his resume and his bona fides and Harvard and whatnot. So all by the age of 48, you know, he's done all these great things. And so he hasn't been a one exception general counsel of a fortune 500. So we're going through this. He had met uh, a Lackland Murdoch. And uh, at the Aspen Institute, which is not a, I mean, it's, they're heavily involved in a whole bunch of things, including uh, Gene Crisper um, editing at Aspen Institute, hosted Jennifer Dudna in 2017. So the two became friendly. And then, of course, he joined the board of News Corporation. And then by the 2013 spinoff, then became director of of 21st century so he became a director there in 2018 and this is where it's important then stepped down from the t and head ahead of the sale in, prepar in preparation for becoming the chief legal and policy officer at fox corporation so 2018 so hang on to that for now so bill barr in june of 2018 sent a letter and you can see this is from bill barr to directly Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, and he talks about the Mueller obstruction theory. That was his, uh, basically his uh, submission of a resume to the Trump administration. Of course, he got a lot of publicity in the New York Times and whatnot. And six months later, he became the nominee for Attorney General Dominion. So... Dominion Voting Systems acquired it by its management team in Staple Street. This is July 16th of 2018. Barr was working at that time in June of 20 for Kirkland Ellis. He actually was of counsel. As a matter of fact, I think I have his bio. Is it this one? Uh, let me see here. Okay, so here's his Kirkland Ellis picture. I'll find it here. He's currently of counsel. So this was, when was it? Uh, this is when it was printed. I'm trying to find the date so that, you know, people know that I'm not that full of it. So, yeah, he was he was of counsel. I said it was March 17th of 2017, and I think that's true. I found various. Uh, uh, the point is, is 
he uh, he insert he made some different uh, comments along the way. But the thing is, is being involved with Kirkland Ellis at the time when he wrote that letter, he was looking for, um, you know, obviously he was looking to get involved in something. And like I said, then no, no sooner a month after he wrote that letter, uh, this acquisition by uh, Dominion Voting Systems by Staple Street, well... If we go down here a little bit, so Staple Street Capital co-founder, managing director, Hutan Yaga, I can't even pronounce his name, but nevertheless, it's there. And John, I said, John Paulus and his team have done an excellent job of building Dominion Voting into one of the most trusted providers of voting solutions in North America. Notice that North America, their uh, Dominion is uh, located out of Toronto. So, Stifle. Nicholas and Company and Ulster, Hostin and Hardcourt LLP advised Dominion Voting. Kirkland and Ellis LLP and McMillan LLP advised Staple Street. So Kirkland Ellis was advising Staple Street. And so that's that should just get in and it gives you a little blurbs about each one of these people, each one of these groups. So you have two Kirkland Ellis people, Bill Barr and Van Den. And they're both connected to the Bush administrations. One's connected more so to Bush uh, Bush one, and the other one's connected to Bush two. Viet Dinh becomes the chief legal officer, and he's still there. Uh, we didn't go through all that, but uh, there's a he joined Fox. But okay, and we'll get down to this. So to get ahead of the economic and avoid layoffs, Fox announced so. He's part and partial to all this stuff in terms of he made $12 million in 2020. So this is be, uh, this is his entire bio. So we got that all cleared up. That's a dating uh, mechanism. This is uh, part of the assignment of patents uh, to uh, Dominion Voting. I wanted to go back through this. Sorry, I, I was midway reading it. So, and we'll discuss this in a second. So this was a new assignment uh, for this particular one, and you see where it's located, Dominion Voting Systems Incorporated in Denver, Colorado. That's that's one of the places. The other place is the main locations in Toronto. And you see who they used, uh, Holland and Hart. But the name that we know about is Eric uh, Coomer. So Jane, where is assignment? And you see the various names on here. If I can uh, uh, pull this over a little bit. So... Assignment here, you'll see Eric Coomer of Broomville, Colorado, and then you see all these Toronto and uh, various people that are assigned to this one. So, this was a ballot adjudication and the filing date, and then they have an application number. So, there's nothing else really to see here except some signatures. This next one, though, uh, we're gonna uh, we're gonna go through a lot of these. So, this was uh, done in let's see, example. Um, so the reason why this is important, this was a security assignment on August 14th of 2015. Security Interest Administrative Agent, North Haven Credit Partners 2 LLP. And it gets all these different patent numbers were assigned and are assigned to this situation. They made a deal. This was Dominion. So the patent security agreement but was made August by Dominion Voting Systems Incorporated, Delaware Corporation, 
in favor of North Haven Credit Partners II LLP, a Delaware Limited partnership in its capacity as administrative agent for itself and other purchasing other purchaser parties, together with the successors and assigns in such a compant the grantee. But you notice it says other purchasing parties. Hmm. That's interesting. That should bother people because it doesn't delineate who those other purchaser parties are. And this is directly from the patent. So, and it talks about collateral. And so this was signed by John Paulus. And then these are the various issues. These are the different ballot uh, uh, patents, patent numbers that they were dealing with. <clears throat> and these patents are in the initiation of the first patent that is important there was one that was a Canadian and it probably won't be listed on here uh, system and methods I forget which one it is on here it, there's an American patent that uh, supersedes the Canadian patent or does it that's a good question from my st standpoint it does but we'll eliminate that for now so um, this is tied to the elections but we'll get there in a second so we're going to open up uh, this location here. I think it was. We're going to check this one out first. Believe me, there's a lot of information to go through. So, as you can see, execution date it says the six, uh, 2016, the day after the um, the day after. Okay, it would be the day a year before the election starts. So Dominion voting. So, sorry, I, wrong date. It's really not that important, but receiving partner was the Royal Bank of Canada. So August 14th of 2015, they talked about other parties and then it gets into the hands of the Royal Bank of Canada and all these patent numbers. The 9202113 is an important one, at least in my opinion. And then you know it goes through J. Johnson Sutherland ASB Brennan LP. This is out of Washington, D.C. Um, I've looked into this one. It, it, I mean, uh, they have offices in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I, there's, they're just processing them. So this uh, patent security agreement is made by Dominion Voting Systems, the same and guarantor in favor of Royal Bank of Canada. So Royal Bank of Canada receives these uh, patents, but there was an interest held by this uh, North... Uh, other, uh, um, what do you call it? Going back here, maybe not this one. Sorry. Uh, where are we at? I'm gonna get rid of the ones that we've already looked at that are, you know, just hiring and whatnot. Because there's a lot of, um, there's a lot, lot to be said about this. But anyway, so you see, it says, whereas the guarantor has entered into a U.S. guarantee and collateral agreement dated December 23rd, 2015. So that was just um, four months after August, September, October, November, December, four months afterwards. Reinstated and modified or otherwise changed from time to time the security agreement. So it goes through the Royal Bank of Canada and, and signed off by Paulus again. And why did it go back to Can Royal Bank of Canada? Who's in Canada that we need to worry? I mean, why are they doing all these different uh, uh, moves? So we're going to go to the next. Uh, I mean, like I said, there's a whole bunch of paperwork to look at. 
Um, and I could have pulled these all up, but it takes time to do that. Let's see. So that's the next one. See why. I doubt there's plenty more PDFs, but these are the ones that just caught my mind. We're just going to discuss them in, in, in and of themselves. So different name here, though. D D Dominion, Vitting, uh, so Dominion Voting Systems Corporation. And you see where it's located. It's in, located in Toronto. Now, this is a couple years prior. But you see Nunk Pro Tunk Assignment. I think it means, I think if I'm not mistaken, this means now for then. Or, yeah, now for then. So it's a substitution of dates. It's saying the transaction technically happened in the past, but we're moving it forward. And then you see some various patent numbers. Not all these are. But notice who was on these patents. And the bigger thing is when was this pro process? It was processed September 18th of 2019. So, this is the person who processed it. And let's say, now for then, you have this execution date here when it was done. And like I said, this is the date when it was actually, this paperwork was filed. So, we'll go down here. And you can tell based upon, it'll be difficult to see here, but uh, it says here they, they were transferring... Uh, they created these uh, two, they had a shell company here re referred to as DBSUS versus DBS, which is, uh, DBS is located in Canada, DBSUS obviously is in the United States in Colorado, and it's just a, and it says a sum of one dollar. So there's just a movement of collateral and putting a dollar, there's no real dollar amount to it, it's just moving from one company to another because they created a different it's a shell game and then you see when it was done in April 25th of 2019 she's just processing this through and you see this witness you got Ian McVicker and then you have uh, executed at Toronto where it was executed which was in 2014 it was signed off by John uh, Paulus I mean they couldn't even they couldn't be bothered to print it out this just looks like a rando piece, looks like a piece of graph paper that was stamped. And then you'll see a notary here, this uh, Vin Tran Esquire. So and then they have a schedule of all these different patents. What I found interesting, if I'm not mistaken, is right, come on, let me see if I'm, Schedule C, right here. This patent right here, that's the one that interests me. You notice the jurisdiction here. This is the originator. This is a Canadian patent. And you see system, method, and computer program for vote tabulation. It just, it just, it's interesting to me. Let's just put it that way. So we'll uh, leave it at that because like anything else, it's a pain in the neck to. But nevertheless, it's the one that stuck out. This, but this happened in 2005. So. They have all these different other ones, and you see that the actual the the follow-on. Um, this is exactly the same patent. You see, you see, it says patent pending. This was issued. So we'll leave it there. In other words, I thought there was some shady moving moving around of patents uh, between shell companies that were designed. And like I said, this person is a fly-by-night lawyer up in Canada, at least as far as I'm concerned. And you see, uh, personally appeared these names, you know, 
So <laughs> they made this uh, deal in 2014. So we'll go to the next one. I'm laying the foundation for what uh, what seems like a lot of uh, moving around of patents that don't make a whole lot of sense. At least trying to follow the balancing ball. And I'm not a patent lawyer, so I'm not going to pretend to be. Um, again, this is the same kind of deal. It was uh, processed by Kirkland Ellis on uh, September 23rd. Let's see if this is a little bit cleaner. So it's the same deal. Okay. Just saving. Uh, uh, we're just going to go through uh, a few more. I just think there's like three more that we need to look at. Let's see if I got this right. There's a there is a couple money shots in this. I just haven't you know gotten to the right one yet because I didn't change the names. So North Haven Credit Partners. So they step back into the picture. This is the this is a key a, a document. So you see Dominion Voting Systems in Denver, Colorado. You see all these patents, uh, and it goes through uh, Kirkland Ellis, and like I said. You see the execution date is uh, July 12th of 2018, uh, if I'm not mistaken, which one was it? Uh, which one? Not that one, not this one, but July 12th, so don't mind me. Um, I just want to confirm the date because in that way, um, Dominion Acquisition, okay, let's see, um, the execution date. So close enough. So you see July 20, it's July 16th of 2018. Makes sense. It's a few days afterwards. Um, didn't say when. It, so that was when Staple Street Capital acquired was in the middle of July. Then required it the day that these patents were transferred. So these patents were transferred that date. And, that, and of course you see Kirkland Ellis represented the patents. That's how they got involved with these. And but this was signed uh, a year later. So you see these North Haven payoff and PTO release, patent release. So, <clears throat> so they were hanging on to these things. And you see August 14th again. And then now you see paid in full. And before that it was being held by the Royal Bank of Canada. And then you see Michael McGee, Chief Financial Officer. And you pay off letter when it was dated, which makes sense. So, North Haven Credit Partners. Just keep. We'll we'll get to that in a second, but because uh, there's a history and a story behind them, and so you see Dominion in Toronto, and then you get this whole Canadian issuer of corporations is an Ontario corporation. So when someone says Dominion is in the United States, no Dominion has a Ontario location and they've been um, we've had our elections being run by a company that's located out of Canada with a Canadian patent that's key to their operations and we can look into that patent it's number 2466 uh, 466 so anyway so you get a payment um, when it was issued and uh, parties that were purchasing and you see these different numbers. The biggest we can get into. The, so you have a warrant for half a million shares, pretty much 540,000 of Class A common shares of Dominion Voting Systems Limited. The time at which the foregoing 
uh, conditions. Okay, so we're not going to get in all the legalese here. The only thing we really care about. This is one of the few patents I've run into so far. That And then you see who it's administered by. Uh, this MS Credit Partners 2 GP. Um, so they even they, uh, and we'll get into that later. And then you see the names, which of course, and here was an interesting, uh, so you have Dominion uh, Corporation, you got Voting Systems Corporations, you got Inc., you got Dominions Limited, and then you got International Corporation. So you got all these little, they're shell companies or like subsidiaries or shells. So $15 million. So that was the payoff. And you see uh, accrued but unpaid cash interest on notes. So there was, uh, you know, basically they held a note and they got, we're getting an interest rate. Uh, aggregate pre prepayment premium on notes. And then you get these various administration fees that added up to a little bit of extra money. But you see North Haven got, got it wired to their bank name is Citibank. And you see how much money they got out of that whole deal. So <clears throat> they were... They had a, an issue, and they were holding these patents as late as August in August of 2015. They held that in issuance. the The other parties that were involved bought the bought the the patentry that would be the Royal Bank of Canada. They bought those. Uh, they got them from Paulus. They held it, so they were holding it in their hands. Another Canadian company. And then they got, and you see where the money went to all these different groups here. So, as I said, if we go back here, it's just interesting. Kirkland was processing it, but the, the part that bothers me is when they 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 signed it on July or uh, September twenty fourth of twenty nineteen, which is about oh six weeks after Epstein went night night. So they they released this and it goes through like I said goes back to receiving party went to Denver. So we'll move on from that one and we'll move on from this. So we have those dates down. And next thing, and I'm only going through so much of this stuff because it's uh you know just it takes time and it might as well get this out of the way. Plus it leaves a record. So you have a brand the very next execution. So this is the 25th, very next day. It goes to H. It goes back to back to Canada. So they're just moving, they're shuffling this shit around, receiving party. So they shuffle. They, I mean, that's a lot of extra. And then it goes through Chapman Cutler LP, uh, and and Sorensen Schwartz. So we'll have to determine what the the deal here is. So conveying party the name of receiving party is collateral agent so they these uh, patents become collateral for them and there's a security agreement and you see where it went to the fourth floor in Toronto so it went from one Canadian bank back to the United States now to the next HSBC as it happens so happens HSBC uh, that made is a Chinese uh, uh, linked bank. At one time, uh, James Comey was a director there in 2013 before he got hired on at the FBI as FBI director. 
So you have all this, and it doesn't have any money here, but now it has intellectual property. So we got a lot of interest happening around these patents. A corporation organized under the laws of the province of Ontario. So because it went back to the main hub instead of the United States hub, then they had ability to take the, take it and then as the debtor, here's that and it gives an address here, is the owner of the registry registered intellectual property set forth in Schedule A, intellectual property. So in Interalia, a general security agreement in favor of HSBC Canada in its capacity as administrative and collateral agent, the agent. So, there you go. And they, uh, it's written kind of broad and, and doesn't really you know tell you much. Doesn't tell you, there's no numbers to it. So intellectual property and it has all the patents numbers that are on this uh, list. And then you have see here's the one I was talking about the Canadian, the Canadian patent application two four two four six six four six six pending. So ownership above has been assigned to Dominion. Okay, Dominion Voting System is listed in the Canadian Patent Office. Um, yeah, as current owner of this record, but the application is to be assigned to the Dominion Voting Systems corporate post closing pursuant to the undertaking. Pursuant, so there you go, and then, and then it has all the registered patents and U.S. trademarks. Ownership of the above has been assigned to Dominion Voting Systems Corporation. So there's that. So it seems like there's a lot of transactions around this. Now, why is it now? He'll say, "Why did we care about North Haven?" Okay, so let me get to that file if I can find it right easily. So let's get to that one. So uh, 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 let's see if this is the right one. Okay, so so there's various. Okay, that's Morgan Stanley. That's the key is Morgan Stanley and Deborah. Uh, does Deborah Abram Abramitz is uh, she's the head of that, that particular um, not MS Credit Partners, but she's head of the North Haven uh, group that I was talking about. So let's go down here and how much money is involved in this. Uh, it's a lot of, uh, and you see the broker in the bank. Um, let's get there. That's interesting. Morgan Stanley Asian Limited, Singapore. And you see different places where they're at. So it was $342 million. Um, and I can find that. I think she signed off on it at the bottom here. Yes. That's 24. That was the initiation of that uh, uh, banking um, pool of interest. That uh, this is going to be a little bit harder for me to explain because it's a lot more interest or different things that are going on. So you know, I have to hold on a second here. Okay. Uh, okay. Where are we at? Where are we at? Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Let's see here. Okay. Was it? Uh, I don't know. Well, let me see if that's the right one. I'm looking for the. There's an SEC filing that I need to go through. Okay. Okay. Sorry here, I'm just uh, looking here. You're gonna have to bear with me. I may have put it up in the next folder. Let's see here. There's a lot of information and I was, uh, okay. That's where we need to go. That's one of the one of the things, but okay. The thing is, is uh, this is a part of a Morgan Stanley. These are a pooled uh, asset, so North Haven uh, Credit Partners Two is listed in here. If I can find it, North Haven Credit Partners Two filer. So that's the one I'm looking at, and then these are the company filings that would uh, you know have regarding that. Let's see if I can. If it, I'll probably pull up a link. We'll get to that in a second. Let's see. Here's your company search results. <clears throat> so North Haven Credit Partners too, and we'll go back to the one that I. This is this is the one I was looking at. So 2019 August 9th. That's the day before Epstein died. And let's see if I can actually see it here so this is a 40 so this is the application here for this group of people okay so in the matter of the application you see all these different companies here at the top and in particular we're looking at the North Haven uh, the North Haven they, that was the one that just sold now they were still involved because of Kirkland Ellis uh, it's my estimation they were even though the transaction was supposed to have taken place uh, they said now for then so I think they made a deal and held the interest payment until they decide to sell it to the Canadian bank HSBC but uh, the key to this was if I get down to the bottom I, I'm not it, it's a long document but it's the it's the names it's not the document this is uh, okay so this is one of the names that's big on this his name is Jeffrey S. Levin so he was the key for this entire grouping and you see and then this is the different MS Capital Partners Deborah so she's tied to these uh, funds in particular North Haven Credit Partners Deborah Abram Abramitz so she's the chief operator she's been there forever Levin though has an interesting background and we can probably better for me to just show you instead of tell you um, and I'll just do it through um, Google here because then because I, I use Google there's sometimes times when you use Google so you see where I have him here um, and we're gonna pull up his bio and then I'll explain some other things that came about so he's the managing director for Morgan Stanley. Okay. He rejoined in 2019, which is the time when this happened. Uh, as prior to his current, he was a uh, partner at the Carlisle Group. Now, where have we heard the Carlisle Group before? 
amongst other things, it's one of the most powerful investment uh, uh, banking uh, entities in the world. It also has all the deep staters in uh, so in there prior to joining the Carlisle, who was a member. So he's always been connected to those two companies, Morgan Stanley and Carlisle. So there you go. And it talks about acquisition and finance group. And then it's got a whole bunch of, if you want to look at the the team here, which we'll do real quick, just so you, you know what I'm talking about. So I think our name is, she shows up on here. We'll see if she does. So there's the, there's a lady that controls that it controls that portfolio. So she's been there a while, as you can obviously tell. Uh, and a whole host of other people are there. So I'm not going to, you know, we can go through the whole thing. There was one interesting name down here at the bottom that I haven't been able to connect. You see Nikolik here. But he, he's a younger, he would be the, the son, uh, son of uh, his uh, parents. I can't connect back to Boris Nikolik. I don't know if that's the case doesn't really matter I, I don't think that's necessarily the the key there but I'm just putting the foundation together that uh, it's interesting that this is uh, tied back to uh, Morgan Stanley and Morgan Stanley did deals with uh, Hunter Biden on his laptop they may be connected they may not be connected at all but uh, I, I would I would lean towards not but that's just you know um, again again it's interesting because this uh, this uh, particular group, they got a billion dollars in 2015. So this North Haven Credit Partners holding that happened to be attached to those Dominion patents and got 15, $15.5 million and is the only company that I can see any uh, direct information on in terms of money, gets is involved with the Morgan Stanley in, in this pooled asset uh, class. And it just so happens that, you know, amongst these uh, particular named uh, people is a name, you see Campbell Condon. You see North Haven Senior Loan Offshore. So they they moved uh, this particular thing, pulled together a bunch of, uh, you know, they saw an application to consolidate this whole um, conglomerate of investment vehicles. And then they redistributed the cash from there um, that's that's the way I, that's my understanding of it I could be wrong and then I'm not going to pretend that I know everything I need to know about this but it is uh, it has some it has there has has to be some legs there and you see where you where uh, what I was talking about with this in terms of this is located in the Cayman Islands and that I can't condon as uh, directors down here at the bottom and I went into what that could be and you see the spike it's my estimation something could have been it could have been done with this and I don't I don't have enough uh, access to know what's going on with it but it certainly is peculiar so we'll get those out of the way and we'll go back to here so this is about the election fraud. Um, let me cue this up. And we'll pull up. It's a long it's a segment here. Let me get to about right here. Okay. That's probably good. Okay. And I'll shut up now. It's had the wisdom, by the way, to prohibit 
Dominion machines from being used, by the way. That's something that's material to the conversation. But uh, beyond that, uh, my specialty has always been uh, primarily related to human intelligence, counterintelligence, and things like that. So right after the election, I look, there was sufficient anomalies, uh, observed anomalies, statistical impossible uh, uh, demonstrated vote counting that a lot of us were very concerned about. The think tank I run, the London Center, jumped in. We had a number of, of our senior fellows, uh, one of our board members, Bennett McFadder is one of our board members who's a technology guy. He actually was uh, one of the founders of, of some of the early technology companies which worked in, in, uh, in managing data. Uh, a, a senior a distinguished fellow, Captain Pete O'Brien, was one of our, our primary uh, an analysts of looking at this. We all were working on this just right after the election, trying to figure out what happened. Um, I was asked to come in uh, as essentially a validator and uh, investigator on some issues to augment Bernie Carrick. Bernie Carrick brought me in. I was working for Bernie Carrick. And during that period, um, a lot of separate things were going on regarding the review. Bernie was, as you all know, working with uh, Mayor Giuliani. They were doing their thing. <clears throat> I was working with some other folks just examining whistleblowers, validation of whistleblowers, and it was all being funneled essentially through Bernie for purposes of trying to coordinate all of this. And the, uh, the individual that I was focused on was this individual who had made the claim that he had moved uh, a full trailer rig full of ballots, of curated ballots, essentially curated in this case being the uh, the U.S. Postal Service trays full of the normal envelope, closed, sealed, all uh, in these Gaylords, these pallets. And um, the allegation, the, the, the whistleblower had made the claim that uh, they were moving these things uh, in his trailer from Bethpage, New York, uh, which is is uh, a part of his normal run. He would make this run uh, five times a week from Bethpage, New York to Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And it was that's where I came in. And the, uh, the idea was to examine as, as rapidly as possible for purposes of validation as well as uh, veracity of a number of folks who witnessed what they believed to be violations of, of voter integrity, voter law, any number of things. And there was probably, any given day, probably uh, between uh, six to 12 whistleblowers, allegations that we were examining. Some were completely like uh, unbelievable, fantastical. Others were uh, potentially valid, potentially something that we should examine. And so that's where I, I come into this, uh, to, to examine these sorts of things with an independent view with my experience as a senior intelligence officer as kind of my guide. Uh, and that's what, that's what I did. Uh, this one instance, this one investigation uh, was a whistleblower. We were trying to get him whistleblower status. At the same time, we were trying to coordinate uh, what he had seen with other law enforcement activities so they could pick up and actually examine what he was saying from the perspective of uh, the truth, as he telling the truth or not. Uh, and so that's that was kind of the scene 
that I was brought into. And there's public uh, evidence of all of this. Um, I actually participated in a uh, press conference with uh, the Amnesty Project where I talk about my observations regarding the validation of this one whistleblower. Basically, uh, I laid out my, my observations, what the evidence was, and what we couldn't, didn't get into a lot of detail of is we actually had a full red team behind us. They brought in some uh, very uh, detailed, um, uh, let me rephrase that, very, very um, experienced experts to include formal, former postmasters, uh, postal investigators, and others who basically we put up on a big board in a, in a room and had them lay out how the bulk mail moves through the postal system, not even telling them why, just said, recreate the system, how it works. And then we, we introduced to them the information we've gotten from Jesse, our whistleblower, and said, this is what this guy is saying, is it possible? As a validation. Now, I, I, if I can just interject, this whistleblower, sure. was he the driver of this truck? Yes. He was the yeah. driver. Okay. Right. So so then he knew that somebody was adding more to his regular deliveries than usual. Is that what he that he noticed, or he just went along with it willingly no. and then his conscience got the best of him or something? No. It was simply he was told while he was picking up his normal load that, oh, oh my, oh, by the way, you're taking the balances. And um, he was, like, surprised. So he went back and looked. And normally he's a bulk mail carrier. So that is to say that he carries, he drives these big rigs. He's a contract carrier. And, he, and his guy, this guy's name was Jesse Morgan. Uh, this is, you can, again, the video, last time I checked, is still up uh, on YouTube uh, where this is all discussed to include Jesse Morgan's comments about what he observed. I was just to validate. This is, you know, this is for Jesse to tell his story. And so his claim was, that he was told as part of his incidental to his normal activities to move this full semi trailer, 52 foot trailer full of curated ballots. Our estimate was based on what he had rec recollected, 162,000 ballots hmm. from Bethpage, New York to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, a full 30 days, 30 days, a full month before the election. And so he, at the time, noted that it was peculiar. It's like, oh, this is strange. And it wasn't until after uh, he kind of figured out what he had done. It's like, oh, that was really strange. And so at the encouragement of his family, he dialed into one of the hotlines saying, hey, I think I observed something that may be related to, uh, to voter fraud. And that's how, that's how it started. Uh, again, you guys can Google this. Uh, the record of this is still out there. Jesse Morgan's own comments are out there. He was on uh, TV a number of times. Oh, we were. This, this is definitely something I remember because we were wondering yeah. how, what, what the hell was the what was behind this, especially because all of these ballots are specified per state. So if you're coming from Bethpage, right. uh, then you know it was this a, a special counterfeiting operation in Bethpage that made these look like Pennsylvania ballots or was Pennsylvania processing New York ballots? What what was going on? Well, it wasn't processing, that's for sure. So, uh, anytime you have ballots which come to the system, they're somehow manipulated. I mean, you I've seen envelopes show up all crunched and set in the other. There's some level of actual uh, aging 
that something going through the system encounters, uh, franking, all these sorts of things. So that was what was peculiar, is that these things were essentially pristine. They were all lined up, ready to be counted, and they, they looked brand new. Uh, again, you can go back and study his statements in this. Uh, my job was to validate what he said, and that's what I did. So his basic story held water. Um, after the red team examined his story, we examined, we looked at the system versus what he said, overlaid it, did a number of things to validate him as an individual. We did some pretty deep checks on him. And then in the end, we felt it was valid. So what we, what I did then, what I was asked to do, is reach out and uh, ask for Department of Justice uh, to examine this as a, va a valid uh, item of investigation interest. Um, I, I reached out to my friend and mentor, Ed Meese, former attorney general for Ronald Reagan. And I said, look, Ed, um, this is the deal. And I laid out everything I just told you. I laid it out to Ed. I said, these are the things that I see. And uh, I'm going to put my career and my word uh, behind this. I think this guy is valid. I think this is a clear, uh, there's clear evidence of huge fraud. Uh, and so uh, the agreement was I would write it up, and I did, wrote it up into a, a one-page summary. And then he contacted uh, Attorney General Barr. Uh, and I said, look, uh, my, my request to Ed was uh, we need to meet with, uh, uh, with the Attorney General to lay this out to him so that he can examine this for his own reasons to, exa you know, to figure out what's best to do. Mm -hmm. So um, lay it all out. This is, you know, how it is. It takes time for these things to work through the system. And so I get a call back from Ed, and he says, uh, Tony, I just talked to Bill Barr. Uh, this is the person I need you to contact. Give it about 20 minutes and um, reach out to him. He, he works on Bill Barr's staff. And uh, I laid it out, and uh, uh, let me know how it goes. So um, I move forward, start working to put together the documents I'm going to need. And all of a sudden, I get a 202 phone number call, 202 being the exchange for D.C. Right. And I pick it up. I pick up the phone, and, and it's uh, it's Bill Barr. It's like, uh, hey, Tony, Bill Barr, what's going on? And uh, it's like, oh, okay, well, Mr. Attorney General, I this is what's going on. This is what we think it is. And he proceeds to start yelling at me, like, well, um, you're interfering with my investigation. Is like, excuse me. Well you know xyz you 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 really shouldn't be looking at this and this that and the other uh and by the way just so you all know full disclosure i've given uh this statement to members of the media i've given them all the details so they can do FOIA, and i've said i hope they can find either a transcript or an audio of the call because instead of being helpful bill barr proceeded to stand me down and say you need to stop you need to turn everything over uh you cannot you know, we don't want any any involvement from you. You you, you need to stop. And um, it was a very tense Jeez. twenty minutes call. I, uh, twenty minutes this went on. So you so you were, you, you were probably in in that twenty minutes. You're probably trying to you know chip away at the ice. Maybe maybe give, give him some clarity of what you the the severity of exactly. or and, and he just wasn't having any of it. No. As a matter of fact, I recommended certain things to be done to validate the story. Certain law enforcement members. That that I recognize as being uh, outside of the FBI to do the the actual uh, validation. Uh, we had uh, 
recognized and spoken to other members of law enforcement who were qualified to do the investigation and who were legally able to do the investigation that were not FBI. I'll just leave it at that. Um, and I said, these are the, these, this is the guys that I think you ought to go to. These are the things you should look at. And he would not listen. He, he was not listening. And instead it was, you need to, you know, you need, need to get him down to WFO now. You need to stop. You, you know, stop now. Turn it over. We need you out of this. Now, okay, so, I, so this, is, this is where we get to, uh, very interesting because that in itself, yeah. when your interview and your statements to the press on this started getting around, I mean, everybody was doing a double take. This is, this is like you said, uh, there, there's, there's transcripts of this obviously somewhere. Um, yeah. Both, both I, Bill Barr and the current administration probably would never want that to get out, so it probably won't. Um, but now we, all we had that we heard this back in May. A week and a half ago, Donald Trump puts on out a letter that he received from a U.S. attorney from Pennsylvania uh, that you probably know a little bit about who says the same exact thing happened to him, only instead of kick this up to the FBI, let them take care of it, they are saying kick it up to the attorney general of the state of Pennsylvania, who, of course, had already days before the election proclaimed Donald Trump would not win the state. So we already know that there was a there was a partiality there. Um Based on that alone, that I, I, we had to revisit your testimony again here to the, to the sure. press because there's got to be more. Bill Barr has got to have been hammering the call, hammering the phone for those few weeks. Yeah, so that's a very indicative. And, and before we go uh, forward with the next video, which is the proof of the the truck driver who actually was talking about this, so uh yes so here's the this was filed accordingly this was actually retweeted by uh jack Posobiec and others out there in the on the on on the different side of the ball so you see district court middle of district Donald trump kathy bookfar in her capacity as secretary of uh, commonwealth so very you see here along this uh, notice of substitution of counsel and memorandum of support so amongst the people the secretary can uh, consents to this substitution so they were representing the secretary of state office secretary of commonwealth kathy bookfar has been represented by counsel from kirkland ellis imagine that so kirkland ellis just just so happened to be representative of this and there was a um, yeah uh, there was an article by Gateway Pundit that I remember reading at that time that regarded so there was a threat supposedly made against uh, uh, the Trump uh, lawyer by a Kirkland Ellis associate um, in regards to this and then Kirkland Ellis decided uh, the counsel for Kirkland Ellis will abide by its obligation under Pennsylvania rule of professional conduct interesting. And take any necess- any steps necessary to avoid any prejudice to the secretary in this matter. As it turns out, by the way, it's quite a a, a situation where you have that that happen, and then the, this shows when it was foregoing when it was filed. So uh, let me see if I can get to um, that particular article. Let's see here. Actually, this is actually interesting. Uh, tied to the Durham investigation, but let's just see if I can find the Gateway Pundit article. Um, 
it might be uh, you'll have to bear with me I know there's people that don't consider Gateway credible but then again you know uh, I don't find the New York Times to be credi credible either, <laughs> either so that's the big news there but uh, let's see if I can find a search function here uh, sometimes things are easier said than done I'm sure it's in my uh, search history well actually I have my VPN on now so it's locked down it would be nice if I could uh, some more okay there we go so we're going to put in um, Pennsylvania and uh, Pennsylvania elections I can't even spell Pennsylvania can I Let's hope I, yeah, Pennsylvania, sorry. Uh, 2020. Let's see if it pops up. Or see if it searches rather quickly. Uh, I actually do have a link. Uh, uh, so, to do that, but we'll see. First, we'll let it, uh, uh, let's see. There was a picture tied to it, matter of fact. Or not, a request for, but there were no D. <laughs> on the elections frauds go figure so it was a picture of a lady and yeah, I'll see if I can find it so it may not it may it may not pop up because there's been a lot lot lots have been discussed since then mm, and it's probably done by search term order I just remember the picture of the lady at the top so it's 13 pages I'm not going to go through all 13 pages but I can find the information uh, 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 sorry um, because I made a copy of the list or I created a PDF of the list of uh, links I've been this will give you an idea of how much work I had to do to get all this information together and go through I went through hundreds of documents um, so and I haven't finally organized everything but that's coming uh, let's see here and I'm going to turn this into a podcast, but uh, I hope you appreciate uh, the amount of um, work had to go into this. Let's see here. Links to DeMar. There it is. So there's a fairly, you know, the, you, know you can see. I haven't organized all this yet, but you can see all the link. Uh, well, for those who watch this, you'll see all the links to all the patents and all the different groupings. But let me see if I can highlight the. So yeah, Let's see if I can highlight on here. Yep. So uh, there's the link. So minimize that. And pull up this article. So uh, and it shows specifically the lawyer that uh, this li Trump campaign lawyer Linda Kearns was the name of the lawyer. Uh, so, been harassed and threatened uh, for the crime of representing the President of the United States. Last week, the anti-American hacks, is, remember this is the gateway pundit. So, Lincoln Project doxed and harassed two of President Trump's lawyer and prompted them to withdraw from the voter, uh, voter fraud case. So, that was the thing. There was substantial amount of intimidation of anybody who questioned the results of this uh, uh, election, of the 2020 election. Of course, people find if you won, you find no problem with this. But if you lost, well, you know, uh, that should give you, you know, 
we are supposed to be in the United States of America, but obviously questioning, having questions and or review of elections, especially under the duress that was COVID-19 and the mail-in balloting and the amount of lack, like, for example, in uh, Pennsylvania, you had a situation where you had, uh, I think it was Act 77, which required a approval, um, it required, I think, an actual um, on-the-ballot approval, and instead they, uh, the legislature uh, didn't do their job right. So anyway, so she was a Philadelphia lawyer, said in a Sunday night court filing that she was harassed and threatened by a lawyer working for Kirkland Ellis. So there it is. And Sunday night court, let's see, what day was this published? So November 2020, so it was probably of that week. Since the case was filed under signed counsel, has been subject to continuous harassment in the form of abuse, emails, phone calls, physical and economic threats, and even accusations of treason, all for representing the President of the United States campaign in this litigation. On November 14th at 8.43 a.m., an attorney from, at Kirkland Ellis left a one-minute voicemail for the undersigned counsel. The voicemail, which, which has been provided to counsel of record from Kirkland Ellis in the case and will be provided to the court via email upon request, speaks for itself and by any measures falls afoul of, um, of professional con, uh, conduct. And then they withdrew from the case. And then Jack, there's a tweet here from Jack Posobiec. And then there's a, yeah, and then it talks about various people weighed in on this. So the point being is, is uh, why is it that a Kirkland and, and more uh, to the point, going back to election night, Fox was the first to call Arizona. So who 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 at Fox got the, the push button to do that? We've always said it was tied back to the ownership. And Paul Ryan went to uh, Fox and like I just mentioned, uh, the 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 Kirkland Ellis, uh, their top lawyer there, happened to do this. So we're gonna go back to election fraud. This is the UPS truck driver that he he mentioned in his uh, Tony Schaefer, who mentioned in his conversation he was the one who uh, vetted Jess Morgan. So we'll we'll let him talk for himself. So. Um... In total, I saw 24 Gaylords, or large cardboard containers, of ballots loaded into my trailer. These Gaylords contain plastic trays, I call them totes, but trays will work, of ballots stacked on top of each other. All the envelopes were the same size. I could see the envelopes had handwritten addresses, return addresses, and I could even tell that one of that one was marked registered mail. That one was off to the side. All right. <clears throat> they were complete ballots. I didn't. I didn't think much of it at the time. At Beth Page, I was first loaded with two tall Gaylords. So, picture that thing there, or or this little representation here, but this tall. All right. So, I was loaded with two tall gay lords, okay, and uh, that were, hold on, where was I at? They had uh, mixed mail pieces bound for Lancaster. These gay lords were loaded first 
because they would be the last off my trailer. The remainder of the truck was loaded with complete ballots bounded for Harrisburg. I then drove to Harrisburg with the ballots. Usually I offload in one of the seven docks every day, but not on October 21st. I wasn't allowed to offload. That's different. Whenever I pull in the Harrisburg, I go around and I get my dock and I get unloaded and then I roll out. Not that day, all right? Not that day. Instead, I was made to wait for roughly six hours in the yard from 9.15 a.m. to 3 p.m. This really ticked me off, all right? Because my brother was in town. He just moved back up. And I wanted to spend some time with him. So this goes on for a... I, I have a tendency to believe everything he he's saying because he's annoyed. I don't think he's a really... I mean, he was working as his job. He's a, he's a truck driver. Um, they're kind of... They come across as abrasive to some people. But they are what they are. They... They pay attention to their load only when it inconveniences them. And if he was there in the yard for six hours or something up, obviously they were trying to do this in a certain manner. Uh, there's a there's actually a video from um, uh, actually um, let's go to Project Veritas. Let's see if I can find that because I forgot all about that one. There was a FBI. This is the same place. Let's see if I can pull it up. I probably uh, because I haven't uh, used uh, Project Veritas on. I just changed over my browser, so we'll, we'll just do a Google search. Um, it shouldn't take that long, but what I'm getting at is um, they did an, an FBI. Um, they were doing a, I could probably go to YouTube and go to their YouTube channel. It'll probably be easier, but, uh, <clears throat> let's just go here. They've been looking at a lot of things and some people don't, you know, I, once again, there'll be people, I could even pull up the, the, Amy Robach, uh, um, video regarding Jeffrey Epstein and the people that, um, were involved in that and see if I can spell Pennsylvania right now. And they, because uh, they they uh, caught. Let's see if uh, let's see if no, they didn't show up. Let's just say Pennsylvania. Sometimes, so yeah, this is the UPS whistleblower. So Richard Hopkins comes forward and agrees to testify. This is regarding, and like I said, it was Pennsylvania based. Another mailing. So you had two of those situations where. Only political will be delivered now uh, that the winner. Let's see which one. I won't play these, but um, I'd say I'll play a little bit of this one. So, let's see. Uh, the postal inspector contacted you today in, in Pennsylvania? Oh, uh, yes. What did they say to you? Uh, they asked me the same questions you asked me yesterday about the, what I'd seen and what, what I'd heard. And we're asking if I had any more information or whatnot. You witnessed your supervisor backdating a ballot to November 3rd? I did not witness them backdating it. I witnessed them talking about backdating. What did you hear them say? They were talking about how the day before, which was the 4th, 
they had postdated all but one of the they had, uh, all but one of the uh, ballots that were picked up as the third, but they had one that they made a mistake and postmarked it before. You heard Robert Weisenbacher say this to Daryl, or Daryl say it. How did it? How did you hear it? Uh, Robert was saying it to Daryl. Robert was saying it to Daryl. Yes. To 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 they made a mistake on the ballot and they should have backdated the November fourth ballot to November third, correct? Yes. And you heard this and um, since you did the interview with me uh, in the shadows, what what has happened to you at your employment? They they were taking an action against you today? I'm not for sure, but they are bringing up stuff that happened uh, like in the past. So they brought up old allegations against you today that were already adjudicated, and they brought those up today. Yes. These inspectors have. What, what was this? What was the nature of your conversation with the uh, uh, post office officials that reached out to you today about this, about our interview? Uh, they said that uh, I was. Well, because of certain factors, I was kind of implicated as the one who had came out. So they wanted to get my side of the story because they wanted to start an investigation into this. I think this comes from above them, and that's what I told the enforcer inspectors. I just think they were just doing what they're told. And, yeah. That happened. This is in Pennsylvania, and we know there was a lot of shenanigans because it took a long time, and there was a huge shift in uh, voting in uh, Pennsylvania that particular night. So we'll go back here to uh, actually Liz Cheney of all people, but I'm gonna I'm gonna play just the back half of this video, but I gotta get it up first. Bravery and honor in these here. So we'll start. I don't want to listen to her for two minutes. I don't even really want to listen to her for one minute, but we'll let it roll from here. I think this is about it. Okay. Is who were his political enemies. It is instead a series of confessions by Donald Trump's own appointees, his own friends, his own campaign officials, people who worked for him for years, and his own family. They have come forward and they have told the American people the truth. And for those of you who seem to think the evidence would be different if Republican leader McCarthy had not withdrawn his nominees from this committee, let me ask you this. Do you really think Bill Barr is such a delicate flower that he would wilt under cross-examination? Pat Cipollone, Eric Hirschman, Jeff Rosen, Richard Donahue, of course they aren't. None of our witnesses are. So, that Bravery and honor in these hearings. So, and we'll pull that down for a second. So those were the, the videos I had of uh, kind of a timeline. So she, you know, she mentioned all these uh, different folks on, on here. And, uh, well, we're going to start with some Dominion, and then we'll show the network of people that work from Kirkland Ellis inside the White House, and then we'll discuss Bill Barr's family's connections. So this is, uh, this is Dominion voting, uh, talking about their their system here. Let me see if I can get it up to a, a, a level that you can read it. I can actually probably, I'll, I'll just go, I'll just go through these three sides. So don't mind me. So 
they're talking about election disinformation is dangerous to dangerous and threatens democracy in their right now. You see how much they're they're trying. This idea of misinformation and disinformation is being used to silence people by people who are opaque and won't show you their system. The code on uh, Dominion is not accessible. They say they say it's intellectual property. I say. Uh, under the fact that under the auspices of uh, running a fair, free and fair election, it should be um, reviewed. It should be reviewed before, right before the election and purposely locked down so no one could access it. But I'd rather just, we, that's, that's uh, saying that I would want this at all, which I don't. I want to see paper ballots and we can do this. We used to have paper ballots. It's never been a problem. They've made it a problem. They make this an issue. Uh, we need to get all electronic systems inside uh, uh, the voting situation out of the way. Uh, the only electronic <laughs> is the only electronic part of this whole piece is what's reported on TV. You summarize the voting, you pr pr give the number, and then it gets you know shown electronically to us. But um, of course, that makes too much sense. So, and then they talk about working at Dominion, and as you can see, or you'll be able to see, uh, Toronto and Denver highlighted, which is of course where they they uh, they've uh, moved their patents back and forth through De Denver and Toronto, and through the Royal Bank of Canada and Staple Street, and and uh, the whole like there. Let's see here. So, next slide here. So this happens to be the picture that's tied to. Uh, this uh, Toronto location and you'll see what I have circled around here so the main site is Spadina, uh, Spadina Avenue at Sullivan Street and then right in this is in the midst of Chinatown which I mean I know people will say oh you're just being a, a sinophobe no I'm not um, and there is a general uh, the consulate general for Italy happens to be located very nearby but the reason why I circled all the things here on the screen is because what I'm getting at is there's a substantial amount of evidence that there this was uh, there is a Chinese connection it came out recently uh, that we had data that's being sent overseas this is a danger this is a danger to our democracy and any influence that isn't being looked into by the FBI is tantamount to treason by the entire FBI and should be should be looked into severely. Our institutions are corrupt. We know they're doing way too much work with the uh, Chinese Communist Party, and they shouldn't be. So, next slide here. Um, so, this is going back to Bill Barr, and you see some pictures here. So, he, uh, Joe Biden, has actually said that he, you know, he liked Bill Barr in the 1990s. He helped him on his uh, crime bill, and uh, Frank. Figalusi, the FBI assistant director, who now works for NBC News. Interesting that you know the Mockingbird Media is all has all these intel assets. FBI, the CIA, uh, people who work in uh, who worked in the White House in comms like George Stephanopoulos, Jen Psaki, uh, Dana Perino. You know, it's not a it's not a left right thing. It's all it's, it has everything to do with. Who's a part of the establishment? Who's allowed to go out and speak? So yes, 
He write, he wrote this in uh, July 7th of 2019. A.G. Bill Barr oversaw the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York. Also many years ago, Barr's father hired Epstein to teach at the private Dalton School with no college degree. So there's that. So anyway, and then I show a picture here, of course, of uh, the Bush, Obama, and Clinton all work at a baseball game. And you notice how friendly and chum, chummy these people are. And all the people that they hire are all now chummy together too. So we'll leave that aside and go back to the PDFs. I'm about ready to wrap this all up. So we've talked about the Kirkland Ellis interference. Uh, and um, so there's a links to the different uh, thing. Uh, I have a links the page that I'm going to post on uh, this. Uh, I'm going to turn this into a podcast. But one thing I want to pull up is, and I, I got the link here, so I'll just pull up the network on my screen. I have a picture of it, but um, it's from Little Sis. So you can see how many links I have here. It's quite in, quite quite involved, and there's lots of, uh, yeah, there it is. So this was a, uh, someone I put together on the, on certain people have always put together these little um, networks of, uh, players that are involved with uh, our DOJ uh, I also have this I, I wrote a great deal about all this stuff in uh, my book Operation Virus a lot of this stuff has uh, been gathered and consolidated together so if I can get this up in a, uh, in a way so that you can read it because there's some extra people here but this is an overall uh, picture of the entire network here I'm gonna hide Bill Barr here at the top because there's um, some ability to do so so there was a whole nest of uh, people that worked uh, for the White House and let me see if I can zoom out here so Jeffrey Rosen you've you heard John Moran uh, Clark Doug Smith um, there were a host. There were at least uh, half a dozen people that uh, worked in regards to the White House um, or uh, directly with Kirkland Ellis. Pat Scipione was a, a tied to the White House, so I'm, uh, might take a second here to zoom this up. And there's a then someone did a good job of, uh, and like I said, they they had their agenda with this uh, uh, breakout too. So I'm gonna I'm not gonna be I'm not as uh, blind or oblivious as others. So yeah, Patrick Philbin, who we mentioned before, who knows the knows the guy from Fox. Uh, and so Barr brought in his whole uh, law firm to run and operate both the DOJ and uh, uh, the White House, which should tell you a lot. If I get this up, you got John Eisenberg. Uh, worked with the White House and uh, okay I didn't need to click on that but uh, yeah you can see where they worked in the Department of Adjustment a lot of these people already work there too by the way it's not that uh, when I say Department of Justice they they were already connected to our working inside the system and we haven't even discussed Will uh, Barr's uh, family connections who got moved around and shuffled so we'll we'll get to that too. So so you got this network here, and we'll uh, we'll just go ahead and go through their little presentation. 
So three highest ranking officials all joined the Trump administration from Kirkland. And they talked about who they worked for and what kind of, they did some high level. Uh, for example, Bill Barr also did a lot of uh, counsel. His, um, he was a uh, board member at um, Time Warner, I think it was. I, I got a, uh, from 2009, you get Jeffrey Rosen and Claire Murray. So, uh, like I said, someone did a pretty good job of putting this all together. And then we're all, this is the DOJ's highest ranks are all dominated by former Kirkland Ellis lawyers. Um, and next one. Okay, let's see. Next, and they, and see if it keeps on doing Many other, Jeffrey Clark, who's Assistant Attorney General in charge of Environmental and Natural Resource Division. Uh, Jonathan Bright, Brightbill. Beth Williams, John Moran, Steve Engel, uh, Devin DeBacker, Doug Smith, uh, Kellen DeWire, and Brian uh, Bensikowski. I guess this is his, next, his name. Let's see what else is next here. Top heavy reporting structure in some parts of the DOJ, including the torts branch. You have to go five levels down on the org chart to find an attorney who did not work for the Kirkland Ellis prior to joining the Trump administration. So this is this is a product of Bill Barr. This isn't so much a product of Donald Trump. Obviously, he, you know, he signed off that when he when the, these people were uh, brought in. Also, hold key positions at the White House. So, of course, it's bothersome because you know they always have made or made for those who uh, currently want power or crave power so much. They always make a big to do about this. If Kirkland was on the up and up and wasn't involved in some other things, I would probably wouldn't have any issue with this. But being I know what Bill Barr is, it makes you it makes you interesting. So this was like I said, this was put together right before the election, October thirtieth of twenty twenty. I just wanted to show and display that for you. Um, shows how deep the situation is. Uh. The next, um, the next part of this is uh, Barr's daughters. So this is just a capper to this, and this was uh, done right as he was being confirmed. So as it turns out, his uh, two Tyler um, uh, Tyler Magaki, uh, I guess that's how you uh, or McGonaghy, the husband of Barr's youngest daughter, has been. Detail from the powerful U.S. Attorney's Office in Alexandria, Virginia, to the White House Counsel, um, uh, to officials said. So isn't that interesting? Um, so I don't know anything about uh, Tyler, but uh, being that he worked, uh, I'm sure he and he got moved on thereafter. He left obviously around the same time that Bill Barr left in December of 2020. So what was he doing in the White House Counsel's office? That would be uh, what would be interested. It's not clear if McGonaghy's uh, 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 switch is a result of Barr's pending new role and the kind of work he will be handling at the White House is not public knowledge, of course. He hasn't talked about where certain people have been working. Um, there, you know, of course, this is what... Uh, it says this is that's troubling because it raises further questions about Barr's independence. You know, the left is always scared to death that you know, you know, someone that they can't control, they want to control, 
will not be uh, beholden to them. And of course, they, you know, they saw Trump as Hitler, so you know they had to they had to project that all out there, you know, to keep everybody, keep people in fear of something going on when in fact they're the ones that are more likely going to do that. It's quite interesting today with the the Cary Lake story and a few other violent uh, outbursts that have been uh, recorded. Um, of course, this this uh, this helps Washington D.C. sell the idea that there's this rash of political violence. It be, would be kind of interesting if we find out who's behind all this and why it's being done. It's not. These aren't just, uh, you know, and of course they've been ginning it up for the last, since uh, Biden's been in there. And they've been using January 6th to, to uh, hawk and whore this stuff uh, out, uh, being that uh, the FBI was involved in January 6th. But, you know, and uh, who's Ray Epps and why haven't they, why didn't the J6 committee uh, bring in uh, Ray Epps and a whole host of other people. So we'll leave that aside. I think I've uh, gone through a lot of information here in the last uh, almost two hours now. Um, it just it goes to the point that there's been a host of um, host of things going on. Um, it'd be interesting where this uh, whether anything actually occurred here with this uh, particular SEC filing regarding Morgan Stanley and the. North, uh, what do you call it? Um, I keep on getting North Haven, uh, North Haven uh, uh, partnership uh, that uh, was tied to this situation. North Haven Credit Partners, um, because there was a lot of money involved in. Uh, at one time, North Haven got a billion dollars. Uh, that was in 2015. As it just turns out, uh, um, around the same time that. Um, that they uh, made that deal that eventually wound up with Roy the Royal Bank uh, getting a hold of Royal Bank of Canada getting a hold of the the election apparatus of Dominion and North Haven was involved in it then and then Kirkland Ellis later on handled their uh, their patents so yeah it would be interesting to find out where this goes and the fact that when it came to the election night, you had Arizona and well, basically Kirkland Ellis was involved in Arizona and uh, Pennsylvania. We know that they were involved in both those areas. In Arizona, uh, the legal counsel that used to work for Kirkland Ellis, uh, the the Viet guy, was the chief uh, legal officer at, at Fox, and Fox, of course, made an immediate call. I don't know whether he had any direct involvement in there, but between him and Paul Ryan being involved in uh, um, basically on the same side of the ball at Fox, um, I could see that. I can I can foresee that because actually he, um, if you read that article that I highlighted, it would it'll go to some detail about uh, uh, the the chief legal officer there and what he thought about everything. And then, of course, we know all about the Pennsylvania, which is what I just discussed. And then, then you take the angle with uh, the Jeffrey Epstein and the timing, the unique timing of that situation, right around the time that they were, um, the mechanisms were being rolled out. 
you know, what did Bill Barr do and what did he know? When did he do it? And why is it that nobody's, uh, there's been no follow up? The FBI buried a Hunter Biden laptop. They buried the Jeffrey Epstein case. How many other things have they been burying? Well, they've obviously buried their own complicity in the Steele dossier. Uh, we have a law enforcement agency that is refusing to do their job because obviously they are politically they are politically motivated to keep all of Americans under their jackboot. So I'm going to leave it there for now. Thank you for listening, and um, we'll do more investigations in the future.